Leviticus chapter 21, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burnt with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or woman who has been defiled or prostitute, these he shall not marry. But he shall take his wife, a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man, blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Chapter 22, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deed, deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we thank you that every part of your word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for training and equipping in righteousness, that we might be well equipped to, uh, to live godly lives. And so we pray that even this passage, even these chapters, uh, which speak about a different group of people at a very different time and place, that this would still speak to us about our needs today. Father, help us to see that our needs are shaped by your word. Help us to see that your word uh, points us uh, to our biggest needs and our greatest needs. And so we pray that you'll help us to do this, that we might respond in holiness and enjoy for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you consider yourself qualified to be a priest? You say the word priest among your friends and you'll probably have a bit of a disgusted reaction. You tell them this afternoon, go back to work on Monday and say, I'm a priest of God, and see what they have to say. And it's, kind of, it's not hard to see why. See, over the past few years, priests have done some incredibly heinous things, especially in the Catholic and Anglican churches which have covered up some horrific abuse by priests to their congregation members and especially young boys. Uh, so when you, hear, when you heard the Bible reading today and you heard that God called Christians, as Peter said, a royal priesthood, what was your reaction to that? Did you kind of gloss over it? Did you kind of go, oh, that's not me? I'm not sure many of us would jump on that tag and label ourselves very quickly to call yourself a priest. And yet, what Leviticus has to say to us today and how we understand that in the light of Jesus it makes sense that we are priests. Now, before we dive into the passage, let's get a refresher on the context. Uh, first, we need to remember the big story context, right? Remember, Israel are saved out of Egypt. They've been brought to God. They're at Mount Sinai, and now they're being given the law. Now, in terms of history in the, in the Bible storyline, we're pretty early. If this was a movie, we're maybe 20 minutes into it. Next, we need to work out the immediate, book, uh, immediate context of the book uh, within the Bible. Oh, sorry, our passage within the book uh, of Leviticus. Uh, and since I'm a fan of visuals, and sorry for those listening online, here's what the structure of Leviticus looks like. Uh, as you can see, each sermon that we've covered so far has actually covered a major section. And you can see actually how each of those sections kind of parallels correspondingly. Uh, uh, in terms of where our passage uh, uh, is, you can see that in red, so we're look, looking at priests, and you can see that we've actually dealt with the topic of priesthood in chapters 8 to 10. Now in chapters 8 to 10, uh, there we saw the priests being ordained, getting ready for service in the tabernacle. Today's chapters look at the qualifications, what qualifies someone to be a priest. 
Now remember that the main role of the priest as well is that they serve in the tabernacle. I'm sorry if you, I, okay, Auntie Winnie's taking a photo of it. Okay, all right. Sorry. Remember that main role, the main role of the priest is to serve within the tabernacle. They worked within the very presence of God, offering up the offerings and the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So everything asked of them in chapters 8 to 10, and here in chapters 21 to 22, is in the context of their service to God. Now the tabernacle and everything that happened there symbolized the presence of a holy God who was without blemish. A God who is perfect, free from any spot or wrinkle or blemish or any imperfection. And so to represent God's perfection, those only those who were physically unblemished and ritually unblemished could enter and serve. And that's what all the detail in our passage points to. Physically and spiritually unstained men who were able to serve. So you begin in chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 3. There we're told that the priests are not allowed to touch any dead bodies. Now this meant that they were not to conduct any funerals or be any part of rituals for the dead. And there's probably an element here of keeping the priests away from pagan rituals for the dead. Now the only exception here in verses 1 to 3, if you were just a regular priest, was for close family and relatives. Uh, in chapter 21, verses 4 to 6, we're told that the priest's fashion sense was to be cared for. No bold patches, no shaving your head, no shaving your beard, no cuts or tattoos on your body. Verses 7 and 8, chapter 21, uh, who they were to marry was also carefully chosen. Uh, the women there the, who they couldn't be married to were prostitutes and divorcees and those who were defiled. Even the children of the priests were to act in a way which honoured their fathers. And so in chapter 21, verse 9, if a daughter of a priest got caught up in prostitution, say like becoming a temple prostitute, then she would be put to death. The link being that not only has she profaned herself, but that she had also profaned her father. And if he, and if he was profaned, then he could not serve, he could no longer serve in the tabernacle. Then in 21 verses 16 to 24, we read those really long requirements about what they were to look like, right? Any physical blemish or defect disqualified you from serving. So have a look at verse 18, being blind, unable to walk, lame. Or if you happen to have a scarred face or, or, on, or, on one arm or, or one arm or one leg is longer than the other, you were disqualified. Verse 19, if you had injured your foot or your hand, disqualified. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> All those injuries would have disqualified you a long time ago. Right, chapter 21, verse 20. <laughs> chapter 21, verse 20. If you had a hunched back, or if you were a dwarf, you born a dwarf, right? you can't do anything about that. Or if your eyesight was poor, I'm disqualified. If you had any skin rash or itching, if you happen to have crushed testicles, all of this disqualified you from serving. Now, to be clear, if you had any of these issues, it didn't mean that you were unclean or inferior, uh, other than the skin rash one. So if you were born disabled 
Or if you had an accident that left a big scar on your body, or you happened to be born a dwarf, it didn't mean that you were somehow inferior to God. Your cleanliness wasn't affected, but what it meant was that you just couldn't serve in these particular ways. But you can see in all these rules that the standard for who could be a priest, just a regular priest, was set very high. Now, if, that, if it's high for the normal priest, it's even higher for the chief priest, the high priest. Right? Priests offered things within the tabernacle, various sacrifices, but it was only the high priest who could enter into the very presence of God during the Day of Atonement. And that very special privilege required a man who upheld a much higher standard. So for every requirement of the general priest, the requirements for the high priest were higher. So if you have a look at 21 verse 11, right, the high priest was not allowed to attend even the funeral of his family. Right, chapter 21, verse 10, go back a verse. High priests received anointing oil on their heads, and because of that, they couldn't even let their hair hang loose. Chapter 21, verses 13 and 15, their choice of marriage partner was even narrowed down further to just virgins, which is probably to ensure that future high priestly children who took over the role of high priest were actually his children. Now, all of this is to say that standards set for who could qualify for a priest and a high priest is set really, really high. Why is that? Can you imagine for a moment if you went for a job interview? Some of you guys have graduated recently. I know some of you are thinking about switching jobs. So you go into a job interview. You're more than qualified in terms of education and ability to do the job. And then the interviewer looks at you and says, by the way, do you have any scars? <laughs> I notice you have a slight hunch. Is your back fine? What is the prescription on your glasses? Oh, I noticed that your wife is so-and-so. Isn't she divorced? Now, what do these things have to do with the job at hand? Nothing. And yet, these are the same questions that would have been asked of the priests. Why? Here's the thing. The priests were the mediators between God and the people. Right? In one direction, that way, Right? They represented God to the people. And so they had to be whole and unblemished physically, and they had to be upright and pure morally. When the people looked at the priests, they were seeing something of God. And in the other direction, they represented the people to God. So they needed to be clean and holy. Right? In the previous chapters, we saw how Israel were to keep themselves pure ritually and morally. So their priests, as Israel's representatives, had to display that purity all the more. So with all these rules about who they could and couldn't, what they could and couldn't do, and even who they could or couldn't marry, the commitment to be a priest was huge. If you applied for a job and they said, not only do you need to pass a physical, but we need you to marry the right person, and we're going to have a say in that, and we need you to not attend the funeral of your friends, only your immediate family, but you know, if you're going to take the, the chief position, sorry, you can't even attend the funeral of your families. Oh, and if your kids screw up, well, they die. You would never take that job. But being a priest was not a job. It was their whole life, which is exactly what God intends. So if you read through chapters 21 and 22, you'll notice six times this phrase that keeps coming up, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. But the high standards set by God reflect the fact 
that God has sanctified them. He has set them apart for this special duty. And the cost was their whole lives given to God. So what reward or benefit did they receive? There's a few little passages in there, uh, but one of them is that they got to be in God's presence. Moses got a hint of this at the burning bush. Remember that scene in Exodus chapter 3? As he comes to this bush, he has no idea what it is. And then as soon as God speaks, he is so overwhelmed by the experience that he throws himself on the ground and he hides his face. The Israelites saw the power of God displayed in the Exodus. And by the end of the book of Exodus, you remember, that is the generation, the generation here in Leviticus. They saw all of this. And by the end of the book of Exodus, the glory of the Lord has flooded the tabernacle and the place was filled filled with so much glory and so too much even that Moses couldn't even go into it. But now God is saying that here is this group of men who have the privilege of being inside that tabernacle to enjoy the presence of God. The high priests in particular got to enter behind that veil, that second curtain in the middle there. He got to enjoy the actual presence of God. And as we saw in the previous chapters, he had to go through all this cleansing task to just to get in there. Right? He had to not only sacrifice animals for the sins of the nation, but also for his sins. And he had to wash, he had to wear different clothing and so forth. Now, can you imagine for a moment what that would have been like on that Day of Atonement? Right? You've done all your ritual washing, you're decked out in your linen, and you finally get to face that big curtain. The cherubim woven into the fabric, reminding you that like after Eden, the penalty for trying to get into the presence of God would be death. So you start your slow walk. You lower your eyes. You part the curtain and you step in a room that nobody gets to see, and you are in it. Fear starts to rise up in your belly and begins to shake your midsection. Have I done enough to clean myself before I go in? You take a few steps and good news, you're still alive. You lift up your eyes, and there is the Ark of the Covenant sitting in front of you. And there he is. The glory of God rests on top. And it is breathtaking. It is the most intensely beautiful thing that you've ever seen or that you've ever experienced. And at once you are drawn to it, but your feet feel like they are stuck in clay. And you, don't, you want nothing more than to just stay there forever. But you know you cannot. You must leave at some point. And so with greatest reluctance, your feet manage to get back outside. And a fellow priest who would never be able to get in there, he walks up to you and says, Hey, what was it like? And with tears streaming down your face, all you can do is smile. The cost of being a priest was great. But no cost is too high when in the presence of God. And in chapter 22, verses 1 to 6, they got to eat with God. That section in chapter 22 contains a number of restrictions, but don't forget the simple yet profound fact. The priests got to enjoy a meal 
in the house of God. I have a few people who have uh, come over to my place regularly on Sunday evenings, uh, one, a couple of which come from over, who have come from overseas. Uh, one guy said to me, in my church back home, the, the pastors, they were kind of celebrities. And so to be invited into the home of a pastor was like huge for him. And then to see me walking around in shorts and a t-shirt was just jarring. <laughs> right? But he's enjoying it. I'm not saying I'm God, but I'm just saying there's, a, there's this wonderful sense of being invited into the house of God to enjoy a meal with him. Now the priests were set a high standard to qualify and yet these high standards continue for everyone generally as well. So you see in chapter 22, verses 17 to 33, that when Israel brought an animal to offer to God, it had to be unblemished as well. So this idea of unblemishedness, this idea of wholeness continues. You see that in chapter 22, uh, verses 21 to 22. So let me read that uh, with us together. Chapter 22, verse 21. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar." See, the main point in this whole section here, in this section, is that animal offerings needed to be perfect, a perfect specimen. Only the best was to be given to God. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, this would have been highly expensive. But that's what wholehearted devotion and commitment to God looks like. It costs you to be in relationship with God. And the benefit of that cost is forgiveness. It's salvation to have God as your God. Now, our passage concludes in verses 31 to 33, God giving kind of the main point to these two chapters. Have a look again at verses 31 to 33. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. You see, in verse 32, Israel were to keep the commandments and not profane God's holy name. You notice that they're not just, it's not just God they are profaning, but His holy name. God's name represents His character. It represents God Himself. To, to profane God's name wasn't just to misuse it, like saying it out loud or using it as a cuss word. Israel are God's children, and as his people, they carried his name. They carried his reputation to the world. To profane God's name was to bring shame and dishonor upon God in how they lived. So rather, Israel were to, be, were to sanctify God. They were, God sanctified them. He set them apart for himself. Israel were to treat God in holiness with reverence that he deserves. And he deserves it because in verse 33, he reminds them again, that he saved them out of Egypt. No other gods did this. Not the gods of Egypt, not the gods of the land that they were about to enter in Canaan, but it was Yahweh, their God. And so they are to listen to him, to obey him and glorify him in reverence because they have been saved by him. God saved them and then he gave them this law to follow. Salvation before holiness. Now the priesthood 
in the Old Testament was needed because the people needed mediators. They needed someone to go between them and God. Not everyone was whole. Not everyone was clean. Not everyone can approach God. And what is presented here in Leviticus 21 to 22 is the shadow of the reality to come of the perfect mediator sent to us in Jesus. The perfect high priest, the one who in this direction represented God to humanity perfectly because he was fully God, completely holy and unblemished. And in the other direction, Jesus represented the people to God perfectly because he was fully human without sin, clean and pure. And that is why we no longer need a physical high priest or any priest to represent us before God. In Christ, united to him by faith, we have our perfect mediator. In Christ, we no longer need a priest. That doesn't mean that the standards expected of God's people no longer mean anything either. And so in our Bible reading today, we also read from 1 Peter chapter 2. And there Peter quotes from Exodus 19, in which God plans to have a nation of priests. So you get your Bibles in, flip with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. One Peter chapter two verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this royal priesthood here is not saying that Christians mediate God's presence to the world in the same way that the Levites did. Jesus is the one who mediates God's presence to the world. But what it does mean is that Christians are to think of themselves as holy with respect to the world, set apart for purity and for purposes demanded by God. The Levites served God in close proximity in the tabernacle with their whole lives. Christians have God dwelling within us, extreme proximity. And so we serve him with our whole lives. So let me first address what this means for the leaders of our church. There is a high standard for God's people being set here. And in the New Testament, there are higher standards for teachers and leaders. James chapter 3 verse 1 warns, not many of you should become teachers because teachers are judged with greater strictness. And I think this is not just in their teaching, but also in the way they live their lives. So in harmony with Paul's writing in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, leaders and teachers of God's word are held to a higher standard. Now this is not because pastors and elders and leaders mediate God's presence to the church. No way but because they are models for God's people. So it's little wonder then that Paul emphasizes heavily personal holiness and godliness as what qualifies someone the most for leadership. If you read through those lists in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, there are a couple of mentions of the ability to teach and having sound doctrine so that you could defend the faith. But most of the vast majority of the qualifications for leading is personal holiness and godliness. How many of you guys have stepped into the South Hall, technically the South Hall over there, uh, and noticed the big chairs in front of the hall? Have you noticed that? They're kind of up on the stage. 
Have you ever wondered why they're there? No, they are not there for weddings, so that the couple can sit down on them and have pretty chairs to sit down in. Does anyone know what they are? Uncle Mike? Yes, any ideas? All right. They are called elders' chairs. Uh, some, since, the Ref since the time of the Reformation, churches have traditionally had a number of chairs placed at the front of the church. Now, those chairs are really big and gaudy, but the idea was that they sat at the front of the church, and in particular in front of the Lord's table. And so that when, and they faced the congregation. And so when the Lord's Supper was handed out, the appointed elders of the church would sit in those seats overseeing, kind of symbolizing their leadership and oversight of the, old, uh, of the flock, of their flock, as they took the Lord's Supper. Right? We, they sat there because they knew the people who came to take communion. They knew what was going on in their lives. And as godly models for the congregation to follow, as everyone else pursued holiness together. So we don't want leaders who are just really skilled in leadership. We don't, want just, we, don't want just, we don't want just leaders who are just skilled in teaching the Bible. And we don't want leaders who crave the spotlight and, of attention and applause. But we want leaders who crave the elders' chair, who by their lives love and lead God's people towards holiness as they themselves pursue holiness. So we're not expecting or demanding perfection. That would be a burden too great for any of us to bear. I would quit today. Like, oh, yeah, I have a leg longer than the other one. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not qualified. But it is right and expected that our leaders love holiness. So pray for them in this regard. Pray that they would love and grow in holiness. So that means we've, got to, we've also got to prioritise holiness in all of our lives. And we've touched on this topic in the, over the last few weeks, and perhaps we're beginning to sound like a broken record. You know, have you ever seen a record player? You put the big disc on, and that you physically have to drop a needle onto the record, and if there's a skip or, a, or something scratch or something on the record, it, it skips the needle, and often it skips the needle back to another place, and so it keeps playing the same section and the same tune over and over and over again. Over the last couple of weeks, it sounds like you've got to be holy. You've got to be holy. By the way, you've got to be holy. Have I mentioned you've got to be holy? But as our passage raises the topic again, I wonder what comes to your mind as you hear about the word holiness. I think we all have a slight aversion to the idea of holiness because it can often sound like we're being told to obey a bunch of rules. And for those who have come to understand the centrality of the gospel, this is bad news. Right? Christianity is not about following rules to please God. It's about grace. And so we respond to the idea of rules, and we say that Christianity is not about rules, but a relationship. Have you ever heard that? But while that might sound spiritual, it's not very biblical. Here in Leviticus and throughout the Bible, the Bible is full of commands to be obeyed. And they aren't meant to suppress a relationship with God, but these commands are there to protect it, to seal it, and to define it. God gave these laws to Israel to help them define what their priests should and shouldn't do, who their priests should be. God gave these laws to Israel to help them define what their lives would look like as well. And never forget this. 
first God delivered his people from Egypt and then he gave them the law. They weren't delivered and redeemed by obeying the law. They were redeemed so they might obey. So here in Leviticus 21-22, we see that obedience for the priests means giving their whole selves to God. Now for us here in 2019, our obedience is to give our whole selves over to the Lordship of Jesus. Everything of who we are. Everything. At the best of what we have. In the same way that Israel was to present their best offerings to God, we are to present our best to God. Do not give God our leftovers. Are you serving God with everything that you have? Or are you merely giving him your leftovers? Now think about the different spheres of life. Work, study, family, rest and play. Are you serving God with everything that you have or giving him leftovers? Each of our situations and circumstances in regards to this, they're going to be slightly different. But we want to be asking these questions. Am I being faithful in this station of life? Or am I making an idol out of this? Or am I being idle and neglecting my work or my family? Am I sacrificially loving others around me, in my work, in my family, in my rest, in my play? Have I placed God and his kingdom as the highest priority? Is God's kingdom work shaping the decisions we make in regards to our work, our rest, our family? Or am I simply living for this world in most of these areas? Am I satisfied that God's priorities are low on the list and as long as I go to church, I've done enough? Now, there are probably many more questions we could be asking, conversations that we could be having at the end, but there's a few there to get us thinking. And to be reminded, be reminded, to give everything to God is costly. It will cost you time as you spend more with people to be mutually encouraged towards holiness. It will cost you money. Perhaps your financial security will take a hit because you want to prioritize giving to God and His work. It will cost you emotionally as you build relationships of honesty and transparency. It's a good question to ask as well that could go up there. In these areas of life, what cost am I paying? But all that cost is going to be worth it as well. When on that day, freed from sinning, we shall see his lovely face. When we gasp in awe and wonder together, beholding and enjoying his beautiful presence forever. At that time, we will all turn to each other and none of us will regret having, made any, having paid any cost. For we will all say it was worth it. Let me pray. Father, you are a holy God. And you have sanctified a people to be holy to yourself. And you call us your priests, those who have been set apart, to glorify you and to live for you with everything that we have. Father, help us to examine our hearts and our lives that we might see that we are giving the best or maybe even withholding the best. 
Father, help us to not be satisfied with giving you the leftovers. And help us to believe and encourage each other that holiness is worth pursuing. And help us to look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and, our jo- and, and the cost of following you will be revealed to be eternally worth it. For we pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen.